You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Catherine Nevin, the Black Widow. The 19th of March, 1996. Tom Nevin was shot in his pub while he worked, totting up the takings from that day. He had had a few pints over the last couple of hours while he was working, maybe as many as five, and he was slightly over the legal limit for driving at the time. But given his size, he was six foot two and had a decent amount of weight on him, it's not likely that these few pints would have impaired him all that much. And yet he didn't react when he was shot at point-blank range, no farther away than a yard, with a rifle. It was a gun meant for game hunting, and the cartridges it contained were for larger game, like deer, and only had six pellets in. Those pellets hit him on the right side of his chest and continued in an upward trajectory out the upper portion of his left shoulder. The internal damage to his lungs and heart were immense. Dr. John Harbison, the chief state pathologist, concluded that he may have lain alive and conscious for a brief time before he finally passed away, but it would have been a matter of minutes or seconds only. There was very little blood spread around on the floor that he had collapsed onto, implying that there was little to no struggle. His glasses sat perfectly placed on his nose, undisturbed, and he still held his pen in his hand. The temperature in the kitchen had kept the body warm, and it was impossible for the pathologist to determine an exact time of death. It's possible that the last thing Tom ever saw was the face of his wife, Catherine Nevin. Tom had been married previously to a lady named June, but this marriage was annulled after eight years, divorce still being illegal in Ireland at the time. He was from Tyna, County Galway, where he grew up on his family farm. He left at 16 to work in England and began working in pubs. It was his ambition to own his own pub one day. He and his first wife, June, lived and worked in pubs in England and Australia while they were saving money to buy their own pub back in Ireland. Tom met Catherine in either the Castle Hotel in Dublin or at the Listoon Varna Bachelor Festival. Stories vary. It was 1970 and she was just 19 years old. Tom was a good 10 years her senior. Catherine grew up in Nurney, County Kildare, and was the daughter of a small farmer and seamstress. She had two siblings, a brother and a sister, and after school she did a year-long course for modelling and deportment in Coleraine before getting her first job as a receptionist at the Castle Hotel in the north inner city of Dublin. It was a place with a bit of a dodgy history and was known to be a hangout for members of the IRA. Catherine's behaviour was sometimes a bit outrageous, At one point, she visited June O'Flanagan, posing as a social worker, saying she was working on June and Tom's annulment. Catherine asked intimate questions of her, trying to get as much information out of her as possible about their relationship, and sizing up the competition as Catherine saw it. Tom and Catherine were married on the 13th of July in 1976 in the Church of St. John Latimer in Rome. 
The couple quickly went about buying up properties as investments while Tom managed a pub for his uncle. Catherine, unable to get work as a model, set up her own modelling school. Unlike June, she wasn't interested in helping out in the pub trade with Tom, but her business failed, so she began travelling around to schools teaching classes on deportment and interview techniques to young women. She was vain, and she was always careful about her appearance. She would later undergo a number of cosmetic surgery procedures. Tom's family, the Nevins, were not enamoured with their sister-in-law. She needed to be the centre of attention, even if it meant ruining a family event. At one point, she had insisted she would make a wedding dress for the youngest Nevins' soon-to-be bride, and made a show of looking at patterns and materials with her, only to announce two weeks before the wedding that she wasn't a servant and she wouldn't be making the dress. She then refused to appear in the family photos after the wedding. She also embarrassed the family at the Nevins' mother's 70th birthday dinner, by first insisting loudly that she and Tom would take care of the bill, despite an arrangement to pay by cheque and fix up with each other later. When the bill did come, she examined every item and then started ranting and raving about the family taking advantage of her and playing her for a fool. The night was ruined. Tom and his wife never really attended family functions after that. Tom moved on from working as a barman in pubs, and at Catherine's prompting, he took on a lease for the Barry House pub in Finglas. Catherine felt herself to be a staunch Republican by this time, and had heard about the lease from people she knew that ran in those sorts of circles. She had even called into the local Sinn Féin Advice Centre to see if they could help with obtaining the lease. She would go on to make some very important connections through the Advice Centre, which also doubled as a TV rental shop. No one had wanted to take on the lease given the premises associations. It had been the scene of a riot in 1983 and had suffered a substantial amount of damage. Refurbishment of the premises had just been completed when Tom and Catherine stepped in to try and make a go of the pub themselves. When they arrived, so did the Republicans, who decided that they would protect the place from the local mob who had so recently brought rifles into the pub and attempted to burn the place down. When the pub reopened... A known paramilitary walked into the pub, leading a donkey, and ordered a pint for himself and one for the animal. Tom served him, and the donkey, knowing that there was no use in resisting and hoping that he was just serving his time with this lease and would soon move on. On Publocked, a Republican gazette was also sold on the premises, and occasionally Republicans would be hired to work at the door at the pub. John Jones was the first contact that Catherine picked up from the Finglas Sinn Féin Advice Centre. He was the one who ran the TV rental shop, and he was also the chair of the local Sinn Féin Cummin. He first met Catherine Nevin when she came into the centre just before they took on the lease of the Barry House. He didn't consider her a great friend or anything, but he knew her, and the pub facilitated the selling of their materials and gave work to their men, so he tolerated her appearances there. Around this time, Catherine Nevin met William McLean at the Red Cow Inn on Dublin's south side. It was late 1984-1985, and Tom and Catherine were living in Clondalkin while running the pub in Finglas. Catherine was sitting at the bar alone when she noticed Willie, due to his Northern Irish accent, and struck up a conversation with him. He told her about his smuggling and attending marches in Drumcree. He possibly was a unionist paramilitary, but he has disputed this. That night, she brought him home with her to Clondalkin, and they began an affair. 
She told him that she was married in name only, and that she and Tom lived separate lives. Catherine was also sure that she and Tom wouldn't spend too much time in Finglas, but not because of security concerns, but because it was a working-class area, and Catherine was a snob. If they were to run a pub, it was not going to be in a Northside housing estate. Catherine even toyed with the idea of burning the Barry house down, but someone told the guardie that she was thinking of doing it, so she decided against it as it was too risky. In May of 1986, the Nevins were able to gather £270,000 to purchase Jack White's pub in British Bay, County Wicklow. The pub site was more of a complex of interconnected buildings, with a three-story residence also housing a small hairdresser's in the back. There was also another two-story building that had the pub in the bottom and an area for private use on the second floor, and there were a number of single-floor buildings at the back of the property which contained the kitchens, dining room, and a function room and toilets. When Catherine moved to British Bay, Willie followed, even helping Tom and Catherine to move their furniture. He stayed over weekends in the new pub. But eventually he tired of Catherine and her games, and he moved on. Later in 1990, he would become curious about how Catherine was doing, and he visited Jack White's with his girlfriend. Catherine wasn't put off by the woman at his side, and seemed to have plans for Willie McLean. He wouldn't give her his phone number, only the name of his local pub, so when he left, she took down his car registration. She had made some good connections in the local guardie at this stage, and she could find out a lot of information from that little. When Willie and his girlfriend got back to Dublin, the woman he was living with and his girlfriend's husband were waiting for them. Catherine had moved fast. To say the least, it was not a pleasant welcome home for Willie and his girl. It turned out that Catherine had contacted him in 1990 through his local pub and told him that she was in St. Vincent's Hospital. She said that she was suffering from a heart condition, but really she had just undergone plastic surgery. She had a habit of lying about her procedures. She didn't want to be judged. She also told her staff that the more than 10 times she had elective surgery, she was getting chemotherapy as she had cancer. But McLean was none the wiser, and he decided to visit her for old time's sake. While there, she asked him to kill her husband and offered him £20,000 and said that they could get back together. He told her to fuck off. But then he asked what her plan was. She told him that he could kill Tom when he was heading to the bank or was collecting rent out of the flats that they owned. He had contacts, after all. Again, he told her to fuck right off and left. It turned out that McLean was not the first of Catherine's old contacts that she had approached with this proposal. In 1989 or 1990, Catherine turned up at the Sinn Féin Advice Centre in Finglas, which she still called to regularly to keep up her association with her Republican contacts. After much dilly-dallying and small talk, she asked John Jones, who ran the centre, to consider killing her husband for her. She had a plan. It would be a staged robbery after a bank holiday weekend when Tom was on his way to the bank with the takings. She told him that Tom would be carrying 23 or 25,000 pounds and that she would make sure that he was on his own. Joan's response was incredulity that she would think that the volunteers of Oglina Heron would act in such a fashion. But he told his higher ups of her proposal. They couldn't believe what they were hearing and initially thought that John must be mistaken. Catherine must be making a dark joke or something. 
And then they thought that maybe she was a guard of plant to try and infiltrate their organisation. Catherine called to his house a few times when he had moved to Balbriggan, a seaside town in North County Dublin. But John continued to refuse her proposition. A few years before the murder, she appeared at the advice centre with bandages on her wrists and black eyes, and alleged to John that Tom had beat her. It would emerge later that Catherine had in fact had an eye lift in September of 1991, possibly explaining her appearance at this time. It was the only time that he recalled such an incident taking place. John said that he knew, when he saw the news of Tom Nevin's death, that Catherine was responsible. He went to his higher-ups in the common and reported his suspicions, but they told him to stay out of it, just in case he was implicated in the whole mess. Jerry Heaps was another man from Finglas that Catherine had come into contact with through the Sinn Féin Advice Centre. He was a member of the Provisional IRA and had spent a lot of time in and out of prison for his various crimes. Heaps left Sinn Féin and the Provisionals in 1988 to devote more time to his wife and five children. Catherine and Heaps seemed to get on reasonably well. She had even invited him and his wife to the opening of Jack White's. His name and number would later be found in Catherine's phone book, which she had scribbled over it to try and disguise the writing. But the Garda Technical Bureau was able to lift the writing from the paper so that it could be read and track Jerry down. He ended up being arrested at the end of July 1996 and held for 48 hours. At first he didn't cooperate and he was released, but then he contacted them again to say that he was willing to talk after seeing what his detention by the Gardaí had put his family through. He described to them how he had met Catherine and gone for a drive with her to the Phoenix Park. She told him about how Tom was making her life hell and that he was beating her. She asked him if he would get rid of Tom. He was shocked, but he told her, that costs money. She told him of the bank holiday plan and the money that would be involved. He got the impression now that she was serious. He told her to leave it with him and that he would get back to her in a week. When he brought it to his higher-ups, they thought it was a wind-up too, but she came back to him. He told her that nobody would kill her husband for that kind of money. She wanted to know how much it would cost. She tried to get him to agree to taking a cut of the insurance money when it came in after Tom's death, but Heaps told her there was no way anyone was going to kill him if the money wasn't up front. After a few meetings, she showed him a bank book that was apparently in her maiden name, with lodgements building up in it from money that she said she had skimmed from the pub. Heaps realised that she was very serious. She told him the whole plan of intercepting Tom en route from the pub to the flats. She said that outside the flats would be a perfect place, but Heaps pointed out that the road was too small and packed with cars. There was no way to sit and wait for Tom there. She needed a better idea. The flats would not work. A few days later, she brought Heaps on Tom's regular route from the various flats and onto the pubs that he would usually go to for lunch, and then onto the place where he would collect meat for the restaurant at Jack White's. She showed him a place near the Phoenix Park that Tom would have to pass, and they agreed on the sum of £35,000. A few days later, she approached him again and said that she was worried about her alibi. She said she wanted to be with Tom when he was shot. When she was told that this was too dangerous and that she might get hurt, she said all the better. She would definitely look like the grieving widow if she too was shot. Heaps reported all of this to his further-ups, and they said that they would take care of it. It was his understanding that Catherine had been paid a visit 
either in Dublin or down in Jack White's, and had been told to knock it off, or they would tell Tom about the plan. In 1994, Heaps turned up at Jack White's with a friend of his, Pierce Moran. When Moran went off to the loo, Heaps told Catherine that his friend there was a hitman and was willing to murder Tom for her original offer, with £10,000 up front. They had intended to run with the money. Catherine wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Where was she going to complain about being ripped off? The guards? But Catherine smelt a rat and told Heaps that things had improved between her and Tom and she no longer wanted him killed. Apparently, she was following the advice from Heaps' higher-ups in his organisation about having Tom killed. Heaps' statement was backed up by evidence of the Nevins owning the car that he had described at the time Catherine was driving him around and plotting, a bank book that was found in her maiden name in the pub, with the account opened at right around the right time in 1989, and the fact that she had mentioned to him that the murder should occur around the long weekend of St. Patrick's Day National Holiday. With all this plotting going on in the background, Catherine had given up the idea of working in the beauty industry when they moved to Wicklow, despite having set up a small tanning salon and hairdressers at the back of the pub. She decided to take care of the food in their new venture and became more involved in the running of the pub. She was taking an interest in the assets that she and her husband had acquired. The girls who worked in the bar as waitresses were put up overnight at the pub, given the travel involved to get to and from the pub to their houses. Although it was busy and on the main road, the pub was still in a reasonably remote area. Catherine set up her house rules. She expected tidiness and no short skirts policy. But she didn't seem to have the same standards for herself, and could sometimes be seen serving customers in her robe or night clothes in the morning. She still seemed to think that she was highly connected in the IRA, and some suspected that she had helped to launder money for them in order to purchase the expensive pub in the resort town. Despite these unsavoury connections that Catherine seemed so intent on fostering, when they moved to Britis, Catherine honed in on the local guardie, thinking that they would give her influence there, like the Republicans had given her influence in Finglas. She made sure to look after them when they came into the pub, sending over free drinks, coffee with a splash of whiskey or pints, and sandwiches. Jack White's was soon adopted as the Guardi's pub of choice from the surrounding areas. And the Guardi often had their functions, retirements, Christmas parties and the like, held at Jack White's where Catherine would look after them. However, when Catherine reported a small theft from the cigarette machine in the pub to the Guardi, and found that the officers that arrived to investigate were more interested in the free drinks rather than getting to the bottom of what she thought of as an impertinent theft, she reported their lackluster response to their inspector, Tom Kennedy. Remember that name. The officers were not pleased, and Catherine then found herself subject to a guarded boycott of the pub from officers in the area, save for some senior members and a guard who was also a local man living only down the road, named Mick McCarthy. On the 30th of August, 1991, Mick called into Jack White's on his way home, which had been his local pub before the Nevins took over, and rather than have a quiet drink, he walked in on the middle of a huge argument between Catherine and Tom. Catherine had just flung a bottle of whiskey at Tom's head, which missed, but shattered a number of glasses. Catherine told Mick that Tom had assaulted her, but Mick hadn't seen this. He didn't quite know what to do about the situation, so he decided that maybe it would be best if he followed suit with the rest of his fellow officers and just avoided Jack White's. 
but Catherine was pissed that Mick hadn't backed her up. Catherine was trying to get a barring order against her husband, but given Tom's placid nature, she was failing miserably to make out a case for this. Mick didn't return to Jack White's until Good Friday 1992, but this was in an official capacity. He was checking to ensure that all the local pubs were observing the complete ban on serving alcohol on the holy day, a practice and law which has only been abandoned this year. Jack White's was open, at the time an offence in and of itself, and when they reminded Catherine of this, she lost her reason. She thought Mick owed her, and from that moment on, Mick was in her crosshairs. She would make a total of 17 allegations against Mick Murphy for misconduct over the next two years, ranging from corruption to sexual assault. Even though in the latter years of the reign of the Nevins at Jack White's, Catherine was trying to avoid contact with the local police, her idea to have her husband knocked off was germinating and growing legs, she still had it in for Mick Murphy. She told the local inspector that Murphy had taken a bribe in order to ensure that Catherine got the trading certificates that she needed for the pub and the restaurant. While these allegations of bribery were being investigated, a waitress at Jack White's alleged that Murphy had sexually assaulted her in the back of a squad car in August of 1990. She said that they had messed around a bit before, hugs and kisses and the like, and on this particular day, he offered to let her have a spin in the squad car. While in the car... She alleged that Murphy forced her to perform a sexual act. Murphy denied these allegations totally, but Catherine told the investigators that the girl had confided in her. Tom Nevin and the girl also made statements. The barman who corroborated Tom Nevin's statement later withdrew his, saying that he had come under pressure from Catherine to make the statement in the first place. But things still didn't look great for Mick Murphy. When the station roster seemed to confirm Catherine and the girls' stories that Murphy had been on duty the night with another officer, Murphy was immediately suspended. But that didn't satisfy Catherine. She went on to say that he had engaged in blackmail and other improprieties. She said that she was trying to get the women involved to come forward, and went so far as to say that she was travelling to Dublin to try and convince one to come forward. But the investigation team had her followed, and it turned out that the only person she met was Inspector Tom Kennedy, and that they had stayed the night together in one of the flats she owned on Mount Shannon Road. Catherine also recounted how she had paid off Murphy to make sure that charges weren't brought against Tom after a fight at the pub with a man by the name of Larry Darcy. On the 23rd of December, 1988, there was an incident in the pub. Catherine began shouting at the barman. Larry Darcy. She thought that he had been gossiping about her while she and Tom were off at a funeral that day, while he had been left in charge of the pub. Tom was deathly afraid of gossip. It was one reason he stayed with Catherine, you know, what would people say? And when he heard of this exchange, he rushed into the room and pinned Larry to the wall. Larry said he'd said nothing of the sort and didn't know what Tom or Catherine was talking about, But Tom didn't believe him, and he punched Larry in the head and chest. Larry fell to the floor, and Tom kicked him. Catherine grabbed him away from Larry, saying he wasn't worth it, and Larry took the matter to the civil courts. He was looking for two and a half grand in compensation, which Tom thought was a bit high, but was willing to pay. Catherine, however, was having none of it. She found a local mechanic, Anthony Doyle, who Larry had borrowed from the pub. He was also in trouble with the guardee for totaling a customer's car with no insurance, and so had his own motives for involvement in the shambles. 
Catherine told him that if he helped her out, she'd try and fix up for him with the local guardie and give him some cash. Anthony then told a tale that he had attacked Larry while Larry was out hanging up clothes, in the dark, and Larry had mistaken Tom for him. Larry had hit him first. So when the case against Tom came up in the district court, Anthony Doyle took to the stand and lied his pants off. But Larry appealed, and the next year, Doyle crumbled under the pressure. He couldn't handle the cross-examination, and admitted there were parts of his story where he had lied. The judge in this case gave no weight to his testimony, and found that it was Tom who had hit Larry, and awarded him his £2,500 plus costs. By this time, Catherine still owed Doyle £230 for telling his lies, and he asked her for it. According to him, she responded, quote, We lose, you lose, and refused to pay out. Later, when the allegations against Murphy and Whelan were being assessed, the lead investigator interviewed Anthony Doyle. He was still annoyed about the whole thing, and willingly spoke to him about the part that he'd played. A perjury investigation was launched, and the Nevins were interviewed. But Catherine denied having anything to do with Anthony Doyle, and handed over her solicitor's details. She and her husband refused to make a statement. When she eventually did make a statement to the investigation, she said that Doyle had been threatened by the investigating guarder with a drunk driving charge, and that he had signed a statement not knowing what it said. She also alleged that Doyle had been pulled out of bed one morning and was threatened to be brought to the station in relation to the perjury charge, and he had been given money by the guards to cooperate. Then, at the end of September 1992, Catherine decided to tell the investigators that she herself had been sexually assaulted by Mick Murphy in August of 1991, and had shown two people her bruises and injuries from the assault. She said she had told Inspector Tom Kennedy of the assault, too. Eventually, after spending two years of desk duty pending charges, the DPP decided to drop the case because the main witness, Catherine Nevin, was unreliable. But all of these charges meant that, if Catherine was to be brought into the Arklow Garda station for any reason, it would be easy to make it seem as if they had it in for her for making all these complaints. An investigator from the Garda Representative Authority, Garda Jim McCall, was assigned to look after Murphy and his partner Whelan, and came to the conclusion that there was no merit in the allegations. But despite this, and the DPP dropping the case against them, the two were told that they were to be transferred to different stations. This looked like an admission of guilt, so the two fought it. But they were told a complaint had been made that the two guardie remaining in Arklow was unnerving for the locals and that this complaint had been submitted by one Mary Duffy. The only problem was, no one had any idea who Mary Duffy was. Catherine strikes again. The investigators began looking into the allegations, thinking that something wasn't quite right with it. They found out that an elderly lady by the name of Ellen Duffy, in the area of Red Cross, had received a letter from the Garda Commissioner about a complaint that she, addressed as Mary, had lodged but she had done no such thing. It appeared that someone had borrowed her last name and address to send off the complaint. Two guards from Dublin came down to investigate, and the transfers were called to a halt. But still, things did not go smoothly for Murphy and Whelan. They were treated differently in court by the local judge, Donico Buchla, and had 20 out of 26 cases dismissed by him. They were put again on desk duty, and the transfers were on the table again. Not only were relations with the Garda community strained, the relationship between Tom and Catherine was tumultuous. 
particularly when it came to Catherine, who had an awful temper. She was not terribly worried about who witnessed her outbursts either. In 1991, she threw a bottle at Tom's head and was also reported to have thrown him down the stairs at some point. Catherine's aunt also recalled that Catherine had threatened to have Tom killed at various points. She went on to say that Tom had told her that Catherine was cozying up to the local guardie, taking them out and showing them a good time, and flaunting all of this in front of Tom. She told the police that Tom was afraid of Catherine. At one point, Tom attended St. John of God's Hospital for alcoholism. While there, he made a friend who said that Tom told him that he didn't really have a problem with alcohol, but that his wife was just trying to get the pub off him. She didn't seem to care about him, and didn't participate in the recovery aspect of the rehab program. She only came around when she wanted Tom to do the books. In July of 1995, there was an incident in the pub one night. Tom was found lying on the floor of the lounge of the pub, his head bleeding. His wife, Catherine, was hovering over him and kept repeating that someone must have broken into the pub and attacked him. A doctor, the guardie, and the ambulance were called to take care of Tom, but when he came round, he said nothing and locked himself in the men's toilets. Catherine was then sure that there had been no one in the pub, but that, as Tom was in the habit of staying up and drinking all night, he had gotten drunk and fallen, cutting his head on the way down. Tom was eventually convinced to go to the local hospital to get stitches for the nasty cut on his head. But what had actually happened to him was never cleared up. A few months later, on the 12th of October 1995, the emergency services were called again and were shown into the main bedroom in the residence attached to the pub by Catherine, where Tom said he had injured his back. Again, it was never established how this had happened. She also tried to set it up so that it looked like Tom had strong connections with the IRA and set up clandestine meetings in the pub to try and implicate him in having IRA sympathies. She got all the IRA guys settled in the pub after hours and left, making sure that the lights could be seen by the road. She was sure that, given that the Arklow Gardee had it in for her, it wouldn't be long before the lights were spotted and the guards would come calling to find out why the pub was open so late at night. But the meeting was disturbed by a couple who were trying to make their way home to Dublin after a wedding. Their car had broken down, and they saw the welcoming lights of the pub, so they called in to see if they could use the phone. The IRA men got a fright, and the meeting was called off, given how easy it was to be interrupted. Despite the roaring trade that Jack White's did, taking business from the local community, catering to tourists and visiting golfers, and from passing trade on the main road down, Catherine neglected the B&B business. She didn't take care of the guests, and she wasn't diligent about keeping the rooms clean. The guests didn't make repeat visits, and it ended up dying by the late 80s or early 90s. With Catherine flouncing about in her nightdress in the morning, serving breakfast and pouring pints, no wonder the guests were scared off. But the pub was still busy serving food and drinks, and was a good source of employment for local people. Tom Nevin employed a local woman, Kathleen, as a cleaner in Jack White's. She was a single mother, and he helped her out where needed. He was very kind to her, and this was typical in his behaviour towards his staff. The younger girls who worked in the lounge thought of him as a father figure. But Catherine took a disliking to Kathleen. Perhaps she was jealous of the kindly attention that Tom paid her, and so she made Kathleen's life a living hell. Catherine reported her to social welfare for earning more than she was allowed to, given that she was in receipt of a lone parent's payment. Catherine rang Kathleen's house every day when she left work to make sure she wasn't going off somewhere else to work off the books and supplement her income. She would demand at short notice that Kathleen report early to the pub, 
by shoving the pub's keys through her letterbox with a note. There never really was any reason for her to be there that early, but Kathleen did as she was told. One day, Kathleen sent her then nine-year-old son to collect her paycheck from Catherine, and she refused to hand it over, telling the boy that he was to go home and tell his mammy that the social welfare man was coming after them. The boy was terrified and couldn't sleep that night. Catherine, in general, treated her employees horribly, and the pub had a huge staff turnover. On top of that, she also treated her customers terribly, and it was a running joke that everyone was barred or banned from the pub by Catherine. It was well known that she had a dislike of Protestants, for example. On one occasion, she overcharged the local cricket club for a function, a sport that was commonly associated with the Protestant community in Ireland at the time. She went on to serve them awful food, told them to be quiet, and then after getting into a fight with one of them, she picked up their antique trophies and threw them out into the middle of the road. Her erratic behaviour was well known, and a bit of a joke in the locality. In June of 1995, in an attempt to cement her control over the running of Jack White's, Catherine went about trying to change accountants for the pub. Tom generally took care of all the financial matters, but she needed to feel in control of her assets, and so she approached Pat Russell, a prominent financial consultant, with Sinn Féin connections. He advised her that, one, he couldn't personally take over the books, but he knew someone in Cork who would be perfect, and two, that they would need Tom to sign off on the arrangement. Catherine failed to meet with the two men over and over again to sign the papers with Tom. And soon, the issue of Tom's signature was moot. Pat Russell was arrested on the 26th of July, 1996, for questioning in relation to Tom Nevin's murder. The Gardaí knew that interviewing those with Sinn Féin associations was no easy task. They had a habit of picking a spot on the wall and staring at it, ignoring whatever was going on around them and making no response to questions. But Pat Russell didn't do that, and gave them enough information to say that he knew nothing of Tom Nevin's murder. He then refused to sign the transcripts of the interview, but he did go on to make a signed statement later. In the statement, he admitted to knowing the Nevins quite well, having been introduced to them by John Jones at the Sinn Féin Advice Centre in Finglas. He described his interactions with Catherine about changing accountants, and admitted that he had used an alias... What he insisted was John Fergus when he rang the pub to talk to Catherine. She had told him that he was to keep their talk secret until all was settled. Not included in his signed statement was information that Pat Russell had given during his interview, that Catherine was involved in affairs, and that he had heard rumours she was looking to take a contract out on Tom's life. Catherine met Inspector Tom Kennedy sometime in 1989, and it would seem that they started an affair, though Kennedy denied this vehemently. They were seen at various pubs and B&Bs together from 1989 to 1994, as well as by the tenants of Tom Nevin's house on Mount Shannon Road. Catherine would spend the weekends in the vacant basement flat with Kennedy, they said. They were often there together. Kennedy would be seen by the cleaners and Jack Whites early in the morning, sneaking down the stairs and out the door, only to return a few minutes later like he'd never been there. One waitress recalled walking into Catherine's bedroom and finding Kennedy in bed with Catherine with his shirt off. Tom Nevin seemed to know about the affair and confided in Catherine's aunt, with whom he was close. Catherine had long stopped visiting her, but Tom would drop by for a visit 
and he had been close with her husband before his death in 1989. Despite Kennedy's protestations, his wife, Mary Kennedy, also blamed Catherine for the trouble in their marriage. She said Catherine would ring the house at all hours of the day looking for Kennedy, and would repeatedly call back if he wasn't there. By 1995, things seemed to be petering out between the now-retired Inspector Kennedy and Catherine, when Justice Dunica Obuokla was nominated to sit in the Wicklow-Wexford area of the District Court, the one that was most local to Jack White's pub. Though again, Catherine's lover would deny on the stand that he had any, quote, irregular relationship with her. He had been introduced to Jack White's pub and the Nevins by Inspector Kennedy, of all people, as he spent a lot of time in the British Bay area at the various golf clubs. It was a popular place for the golf patrons to eat and to use for B&B in the area. He never admitted staying overnight at Jack White's, and if this is to be believed, then the least that can be said was that Catherine was most certainly infatuated with the new judge. Employees at Jack White's reported that Catherine was often seen entertaining the judge, and that if he got too drunk with her, she would insist that he not drive home. Catherine made a fuss of the man. But sometimes the judge would appear with his family in tow for Sunday lunch. Tom seemed to just ignore all these goings-on, and would keep himself in a different room, playing darts. St. Patrick's weekend of 1996 was marred by Catherine's odd behaviour. She was being super helpful to her husband, offering to drive out to suppliers and to go to the bank, which she never usually did. She was trying to make sure that he didn't make it to the bank to lodge the takings from the pub that busy Friday. Finally, in desperation, she went with him out to the village and insisted on going to the chemist to get a prescription before her husband went to the bank. She managed to delay him enough that he missed the half-four deadline for lodgements, so they returned to the pub. By Monday the 19th, she was acting even more oddly. She barred all the staff from staying in the pub that night, even though it was usual to allow them to stay after the late-night disco at the Tunnel nightclub. She snapped at people. At about 6pm, a strange man wearing a long black coat and carrying a large bag came into the pub. He drank only a coffee and made a phone call, whispering quietly. Staff noted that it was odd. That evening, Catherine had the curtains drawn in the restaurant. They'd never been closed before, and this was apparent from the dark marks left on the folds that hadn't seen daylight before. She cleared the tables and closed up early. By midnight, there were a few people still milling around the pub, Many were members of staff waiting on a taxi to take them to the nightclub. Two elderly patrons asked Tom for a lift home. Catherine attempted to intervene and offered to bring them herself, which was pretty much unheard of, but Tom wouldn't let her and off he went. He got home just after the last customer, Garda Sergeant Dominic McGilligot, left. The till was last used at 12.56am. That night, Tom had poured himself half a pint of Guinness and went into the kitchen to do the accounts. The next morning, Tuesday, the guardie arrived at the pub at 4.45am. The emergency alarm had been triggered by Catherine Nevin, and it was she that they saw first when they entered the house. She appeared to be in shock, but described how she had gone to bed at half-past midnight and had been woken by two men in balaclavas in her bedroom, who were waving knives about and demanding her jewellery. They bound her wrists and ankles and gagged her with a pair of her own tights. She heard a loud bang from downstairs, which she described as being like a saucepan being dropped, and then the raiders were gone. She told the guardie that she had managed to get her ankles loose and got downstairs to sound the alarm. The guardie checked the pubs for signs of a break-in on entrances or doors, but they didn't find any. 
There was some overturned furniture and a trail of jewellery from the bedroom down to the bar. One of them drove the area looking for Tom Nevin's car, which was missing from out front of the pub, but it wasn't in the immediate area. Catherine told them that the men sounded more local than Dublin. The guardies set her wrists free and went in search of Tom. Catherine had been asking where he was, but said she hadn't gone looking for him herself. They saw him laying on his back in the kitchen near to the fridge. There was a broken stool nearby and a small pool of blood beneath him. They noted the gunshot wound on the right side of his chest. Catherine's jewellery was scattered down the hall stairway and kitchen. She would later confirm that none was missing. One of the guardi took notes as Catherine told them what happened that night, and her hands and face were swabbed for gunshot residue, though she said she had already washed her hands before the sample was taken. She was able to tell the guardie that the totals for the cash taken in the pub that weekend would be in the ledger in the kitchen near Tom, but considering she had said that she never went into the kitchen, this struck the investigating guardie as odd. It was noted that the cash floats lay untouched in the three tills that had been left out. The bedroom was relatively undisturbed, given that Catherine told them that the burglars had been ransacking the room for her jewellery. The bedside tables in the room were undisturbed, and her goodly amount of prescription medicine was untouched. The panic button concealed under a table in the bedroom hadn't been used. A box of rifle cartridges were on the windowsill, next to a second untouched panic alarm. Catherine told them that the shotgun was kept downstairs in the storeroom. This gun was later eliminated as the weapon used to kill Tom. Fingerprints were taken, particularly of Catherine's jewellery box, which was found in the kitchen. All the prints turned out to be Catherine's. Prints were eventually taken from the Opal Omega car that the Nevins owned, which had turned up the day after the murder in Dublin city centre. At noon on the Tuesday, Catherine refused to give a signed statement to the Gardaí, as she said it would only be doctored. She didn't trust the Gardaí at Arklo Station. In the aftermath of Tom's death, Catherine caused havoc. She first insisted that the suit Garda McCall had put Tom in for the funeral be changed to his shirt, jumper and jacket, which he normally wore. She had it in for Garda McCall and didn't like the idea that he would pick the clothes that Tom would be buried in. When his clothes were changed, she burned the suit, saying Tom had hated it. There was a coolness noticed between her and the rest of the Nevin family at Tom's funeral. When she arrived late for the funeral, she said it was the guard's fault for keeping her up late the night before. She seemed to many to be forcing tears, and seemed happy to recount to people what had happened in the pub only a few short days previously. One of Tom's sisters-in-law was told the tale, and later heard Catherine saying that she was actually in bed reading when the two men burst in, rather than asleep. When her audience asked if she had seen the men, she responded that she couldn't, because it was dark. The sister-in-law asked, but Catherine, if it was dark, how could you have been reading? She also couldn't get her story straight as to whether Dominic McElligot had pulled the door closed behind him, or whether she herself had shut the door and properly locked it up. The guards were immediately suspicious of her, and it was noted by a local politician that the special branch guardie were parked outside the funeral home at Tom's Wake. She later told those who had come back to the pub after the funeral, as is traditional in Ireland, that she had actually locked the front door after letting Garda McElligot out the night of the botched robbery, and that she had smelled gunpowder when Tom was shot. Soon Catherine became aware that the landline at the pub was being monitored by the guardie, so she got herself a mobile phone to use. 
She next lost the plot when the pub was released back to her when the Gardaí were finished with it. She stopped them from cleaning the pool of blood where Tom had lain, saying she wanted her guests to see and appreciate the full horror of what had happened there. When she finally gave her statement, under the advice of her solicitor, she immediately started pointing fingers. First to be accused of suspicious behaviour was a couple with whom Catherine had a passing acquaintance. They were in their thirties, the man with a posh accent from Dublin, and he was well-dressed. Catherine had more disparaging remarks for the woman, who she said was fat and dressed cheaply. The two had stayed in the pub in February, and Catherine said that they were over-familiar with her, and even asked about Tom's flats that he rented in Dublin. They wanted to know how they were doing. Catherine accused the man of, quote, casing out the kitchen when he returned their breakfast plates to her the morning after their stay. It turned out that Catherine had then refused them accommodation again on the 17th and 18th of March, saying that the B&B was fully booked up. But this was a lie. Catherine had strangely not taken any bookings for accommodation that weekend at all. Jack White's was empty. She then described two men that had come into the pub two weeks before the murder. She said that they were looking for the toilets, but they just walked around the pub. She described them thusly, quote, Number one, early twenties, slightly cultured knacker, fast strides, ginger-haired, cut short, curly. He was about average height. Number two, can't remember exactly what he looked like, might have had a tash. She said they were both members of the traveller community. Catherine went on to say that she was also worried about Paul Hart. He was the man who had robbed Jack White's pub, leading to its sale in 1985 to the Nevins. She knew he had been in the pub and thought that this might pique the Gardie's interest, but it turned out that they were satisfied that he had nothing to do with the murder. Catherine told the guards that Tom had been followed a number of times when he was on his run to collect rents in Dublin. She pointed fingers wildly to ex-employees and even local business owners. But the Gardie didn't just follow their suspicions blindly, and they did look at the possibility that another may have committed the crime. This was despite the fact that the crime scene didn't really make any sense. There was an apparent break-in for jewellery, but none was taken. Catherine was threatened, but Tom appeared to have been shot with no warning, and the guards couldn't figure out how the intruders had gained entry to the place, leaving no marks. One person they did consider was Patrick Duchy Holland, who was local to the British Bay Area and a known criminal. He was a professional hitman and had associations with the Dublin gangs, and he was also the prime suspect in the murder of Veronica Guerin, a prominent journalist who was investigating gangland crime. But he was dismissed from the investigation, as there was nothing to tie him to the crime, bar that he had been in Jack White's a few times before. On the 4th of April, the guards from the Technical Bureau conducted tests in the kitchen of the pub, discharging single-barreled rifles to ascertain if it was possible that Catherine had heard the shot from her bedroom. Catherine allowed the tests, but would not allow them to enter her bedroom, so a detective superintendent waited in the bedroom next to hers. He heard the noises, two he recognised as gunshots, and four that sounded like indistinct loud noises, none that sounded like dropping saucepans. When he went to the kitchen, he could smell the gunpowder, but only slightly. Catherine was next interviewed on the 29th of April, where she was asked about her associations with a number of people but she denied any knowledge of the people or the crime. On the 17th of May, Jack White's was searched again by the Gardaí. On the 27th of July, 1996, Catherine was arrested for having information relating to the unlawful possession of a firearm and was brought to Enniscorthy Garda Station. 
The media had gotten wind of her impending arrest and were there at Jack White's when the guardie called by. As she was being put into the squad car, she shouted over her shoulder to the staff that were looking on, Contact my solicitor! All very dramatic. The incident was splashed all over the newspapers the next day. She was held for 48 hours. She refused to cooperate with the guardie and didn't answer any questions. She also refused all offers of food. All the problems with her story were put to her by the guardie during this questioning. Why had she banned the staff from the pub that night? Closed the curtains? Gotten dressed up? Why were there no marks on her ankles from being tied up? Why didn't she look for Tom after she had hit the panic button? She was asked if she knew Jerry Heaps and Pat Russell and a man named John Ferguson. She made no reply to any of the questions and refused to sign the transcript of the interview. Her choice not to cooperate with the guardie pretty much confirmed their thoughts that she was responsible for her husband's death. They had brought her in on circumstantial evidence, but she was defiant, rather than playing the grieving widow. If she had nothing to hide, why didn't she cooperate? She made a number of allegations of mistreatment by the guardie, which were all later dismissed. In order to circumvent any allegations that the interview were conducted exclusively by male guardie, Noreen O'Sullivan, who would later become Garda Commissioner, and Margaret Howard were brought in from Dublin. They were just as unsuccessful as their male colleagues in trying to get Catherine to cooperate. The murder of Tom Nevin was as yet unsolved, but the guardie were honing in on their main suspect, his wife Catherine. The scene at the pub appeared to be staged and the investigation into Catherine and her motives for killing her husband, or more precisely, for having him killed, would soon be apparent. The Gardaí were about to find out about Willie McLean, John Jones, and Jerry Heaps. Next time on the Mens Rea Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea Podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod. Join in on the discussion at the Mens Rea Pod discussion group. Or you can send us in your questions, comments, or suggestions to mensreapod at gmail.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters on Patreon. Your support means a lot and helps to defray some of the production costs of the podcast. Special thanks to our newest patron, Tor Hansen. If you would like to sponsor the podcast, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. I'd also like to thank our five-star reviewers on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Lee for your very kind words. To Katie Khan, thank you for your compliments about the research and presentation. Thank you to Jen the Mole. I'm glad to be back too. And thank you to Visan. Um, thank you for your kind words. Uh, I'm working on the sound. Uh, hopefully you will see some improvements in the, the next couple of episodes. And that scratching noise is me touching my laptop. I still haven't figured that one out yet. So just bear with me. The sound will get better. Thanks very much, Vizan. This podcast is research, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com, or in the show notes. Our theme song is Quinn's Dance by Kevin MacLeod. With thanks to Rona McHugh for help with sound engineering. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.